you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. We're going to open up to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. So grab out your Bibles and, and let's read with me. And they sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nat. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing? Good to see you in church this morning. Thanks so much for joining us, whether you're new or visiting. My name's Nick. Get the joy of unpacking today this passage that's just been read out for us and this topic of religious freedom. To do that, and before we do that, and every week before we open the Scriptures, we want to pray. So would you pray with me before we dive in? Our gracious God, we thank you so much for the opportunity today, and Lord, we'll pray it every week. Been in a world of division and outrage and conflict, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and we pray that grace and truth might come into this place, into our hearts and out of our lives uh, today and through this series, we pray. And so we commit ourselves to you, Lord, come and have your way by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, as Nat said, uh, today we turn to one of the most hot-button and culturally pressing issues of our day, the topic of freedom of religion. And as I was thinking about how to introduce this topic, my mind took me back to my childhood. I grew up in a religious home. I was a, a pastor's kid in a religious home. But I have very distinct memories of my dad's laugh. Uh, emanating down the hallways of my house. He had one of those laughs that was like, (gasps) and uh, you kind of knew that he was watching something on the TV whenever that happened. And it would so so often be the case uh, that it was like old school British comedy. And so sometimes it was a show called Keeping Up Appearances where where Mrs. Bucket uh, would call herself Mrs. Bouquet. I don't know if if anyone knows that. Uh, Other times it was Faulty Towers and the slapstick comedy of John Cleese. Uh, But perhaps what set him off the most uh, was Monty Python. Uh, That made my dad laugh in a way where I kind of became like Dale Kerrigan on the castle, kind of looking up to him like, (laughs) like he he was so into it and I didn't understand a thing, but I laughed along with him. And ironically, if you've ever seen Monty Python, a, a lot of the things that they made fun of were religious. They, they, they wanted to take the mickey out of religion. And that was certainly true of one of their most famous movies, uh, The Life of Brian. The Life of Brian is a movie about Brian of Nazareth, who just happened to have been born on the same day in the same town as the Jesus of Nazareth. And after joining an anti-Roman terrorist group, Brian becomes an unwilling messiah. 
The crowds flock to him uh, as their Messiah. And there's one scene that is particularly clever in, in summing up modern uh, thought and the, the modern mind concerning religion. Crowds are, are gathering outside of, of Brian's home here, uh, and his mum comes out to try to shoo them away and say, he's not the Messiah, he's just a very naughty boy. And then Brian has to come out again after the mum, and he comes out and he says, look, you've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for yourselves. You're all individuals. And in response, the crowd together in one voice says, yes, we're all individuals. You're all different, says Brian. Yes, we're all different, says the crowd. You've all got to work it out for yourselves, says Brian. Yes, we've all got to work it out for ourselves, says the crowd. And it is a very funny portrayal of what we think about religion today, that religion is about conformity. And our modern, secular, pluralistic world is about diversity, that religion is about control. And our modern, secular, pluralistic world is about freedom, that religion is about bigotry and violence. And our modern, secular world is about peace and unity. And so even the phrase today, freedom of religion, perhaps appears to our world as an oxymoron, because freedom and religion just seemingly do not go together. And that is a particular source of tension in our particular culture today, perhaps, perhaps like in Australia in particular, over the last five to ten years. We had a few years ago now the, the marriage plebiscite uh, about redefining the definition of marriage, and then that led to a conversation about the implications for uh, religious groups and individuals. Uh, there was a, a case down in Tasmania that kind of set it off where the Archbishop, the Catholic Archbishop, made a, a pamphlet about the, the biblical view of marriage, sent it out to the Catholic schools, but somebody uh, wasn't happy with it, and so it was brought before the courts, had a case to answer apparently around discrimination. That then led to a, a federal review of religious freedom and religious discrimination. In the meantime, we had rugby players sacked for their controversial tweets. That led to a campaign about religious discrimination, having a bill for it. Uh, then we had a campaign against the religious discrimination bill and the ongoing debates around schools and codes of conduct and uh, kind of jobs and testing for jobs and whether you needed to hold the faith of a Christian school. Uh, then more recently, we had rugby players not playing. It's always the rugby players for some reason, not playing uh, because of the, the, the pride jersey that they were going to have to wear. It goes on and on and on. And I'm sorry to say, over the next 30 minutes, we are not going to solve all of the tensions that are in your mind trying to, trying to tease this out. And so at least let's enjoy the fact that there is equality in the room. All of us are going to be frustrated. Uh, there is not going to be a resolution to all this. But what I hope today to, to talk about is actually and help you see, actually, that the secular, modern, pluralistic world we live in today didn't actually arise in opposition to religion, but actually is the fruit of the incredible influence of one religion in particular, namely Christianity. And so what I want to do today for our, our talk is let's look at the text uh, and let's talk about the story of religious freedom in our world. And then that will bring us up to today, and we'll talk about the state of religious freedom today. And then I'm just going to start 
the conversation how we as Christian people might think about relating with religious freedom in our world today. So let's talk about the story of religious freedom today. In, in many ways, this story that, that Nat read out for us starts like many stories in the Gospels around Jesus. They're coming to test him. The, the religious elite are coming to test and trap and shame and discredit Jesus. And in this case, they thought they had found the question, the question to trump all questions to finally expose and hopefully see the decline of Jesus' rising popularity. And so let's pick it up again in Mark chapter 12, in verse 13. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And so to begin with, it's like a sandwich. They, they butter him up to, to try to bring him down later. And, and ironically, and unfortunately for the Pharisees, what they say in flattery is actually true. Jesus truly does teach the way of God, and he is not swayed by anyone's opinion. And so then they get to the question, and they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? And we can see where the, the Pharisees are going with this. The Jews at the time were being ruled by the Romans of the day. And so any self-respecting Jew is going to advocate for, for the freedom of the Jewish people and the reestablishment of the sovereign state of the Jews. And so if Jesus supports the tax, well, he's going to lose all of his credibility amongst the, the Jewish followers and the Jewish hearers that he has now. But if Jesus doesn't support paying the tax, well, I'm sure there are some Roman guards and centurions around and the, the, the state is going to be out to get him and he'll be in the crosshairs of the Romans and their power. They've got him. But then we see his response. Verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it, a coin. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so Jesus' response is worth marveling at. Let's, let's do that for a moment. Because what Jesus does here is he, he simultaneously acknowledges the government of the day, the legit, legitimacy of the government of the day. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And at the very same time, he highlights that actually God is sovereign over all of your life. He is deserving and worthy of all of your life. Render to God the things that are God's. And so there's a tension here. And this tension affirms that there are duties to governments that do not infringe upon, upon one's own commitment to God. You can worship God and be faithful to a government that doesn't know Him and the very same life. There is a secular sphere underneath, yes, but can be defined outside of the sacred sphere. One could worship and fulfill their commitments to God while tolerating that there are, might be parts of society that might think differently or worship differently. And so what Jesus does here is he effectively he separates earthly power and authority from genuine faith and obedience. That you don't need the former to have the latter. You can be free, radical in his day, you can be free without also having to be in control. 
And this was a very radical proposition because at the time, the, the, the Romans had conflated religion with government power by treating their emperor, Caesar, as God. But the Jews had done something quite similar. They had conflated religion with, with government power because they were eagerly awaiting and fighting for the overthrow of the Romans to re-establish God's kingdom on earth. And here comes Jesus. Jesus thinks differently. Now, this answer that Jesus brings is, is continued to, to echo down throughout history. It has incredible implications for our world today. Because as the Jesus movement took off, Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, the Jesus movement took off, and with it, so did this idea about religion and government. It led to the, the early church, uh, believing that we shouldn't try to enforce religion. Very famous early church father, Tertullian, uh, in around 200 AD, he was the first to coin the phrase, freedom of religion. And he famously wrote, it is a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature that every man should worship according to his own convictions. One man's religion neither harms nor helps another man. It is assuredly no part of religion to compel religion to which free will and not force should lead us. And so the message of Jesus bore the fruit of Christian teaching on tolerance, on loving your neighbor by not coercing your neighbor, by leading with humility and not power. So this was a radical shake-up of even some parts of the world today. Then over the next 100 years after Tertullian, uh, the Christians themselves actually were at the, the, kind of at the um, target of a lot of state-sanctioned persecution. And then there was a massive moment in history where actually the emperor himself became a Christian. Constantine became a Christian. And he wrote something called the Edict of Milan, which freed Christians from that state-sanctioned persecution, but also freed everybody else to worship how they see fit. It says in the Edict of Milan, we have also conceded to other religions the right of open and free observance of their worship for the sake of the peace of our times, that each one may have the free opportunity to worship as he pleases. And so the fruit of this text is, is more and more toleration, now you had this unique dynamic where the political power was in the hands of those who claimed to have faith in Christ. And it was complex because you have this tension between unity where if you've got the power, you want the people under your leadership to, to experience what you know to be best for them. The tension between that and tolerance where you want the people under your leadership to know that they can live life how they think is best for them. And there's a great tension there between unity and tolerance. And unfortunately, that meant that sometimes the power took prominence over the gospel message at the time. But on the ground, through the church, the Christian teaching was still influenced by these words of Jesus. In the 5th century, a very influential theologian, uh, Augustine, he famously wrote about the city of God and the city of man. And he's continued to be read and studied and, and influential today. But he etched into the consciousness of humanity this idea of the separation of the, the secular sphere from the sacred sphere and therefore tolerance because of that separation. And so in the midst of the, the complexity around power dynamics and faith, the Christian teaching was still shaping the world in a tolerant and a free direction. Now, I mentioned my dad's sense of humor. It was very much old-school British comedy. Uh, 
the, the TV shows that would set me off in high school as a kid and have my laugh uh, emanating out throughout the hallways of my home was the TV show Family Guy. Anybody know Family Guy? Uh, there, there is one particular episode uh, of Family Guy called The Road to the Multiverse, uh, where Stewie, the, the baby here in the picture, has, has a device, and he can use that device to, to jump to parallel universes. And one of the universes that he gets beamed to is the universe where it's the same day, the same time, and he's in the same town, and yet technology has incredibly advanced. People can levitate, there's travel at the speed of light. And so what's the explanation for for why this multiverse, this universe, took off? He gives us the explanation. He says this, in this parallel universe, Christianity never existed which means the dark ages of scientific repression never occurred, and thus humanity is a thousand years more advanced. That's a common quip, isn't it? That that, that Christianity has caused humanity to regress, and so we call this time between like 500 and 1500 the dark ages. Nothing happened. Forget it out of history. Christianity got in the way of progress, and yet the reality is that in these centuries... Uh, between Roman rule and the Enlightenment, there was an incredible influence of Christianity, and it was an influence birthed out of teaching, birthed out of passages like this, that set the stage for the Enlightenment period in the 17th century and beyond. Certainly, there was a lot of mess and there was a lot of sin, uh, but I create a lot of mess and a lot of sin. That's what humans do, Christians included. We know about the Crusades, which were waged by Christians, but also condemned by Christians. There were people like Charlemagne, who tried to force conversions through violence and and fear, and he had to kind of be talked talked down from it, persuaded out of it by Christian scholar Alcuin, uh, who rather persuaded him to be about persuasion rather than coercion. But there was a lot of good that we take for granted today. There was educational reforms and schools and a return to classical learning. Universities were started like Oxford in 1096, and they were started with the motto, God is my guiding light. Monasteries led the way in advancing technology because they had the the, the thought that, hey, we should get machines to do stuff so we don't need humans and slaves to do stuff. Uh, Reforms by Pope Gregory led to the realities of the Bible being enshrined in canon law, which ultimately led to this this assumption that we have today that people can have human rights. Parliaments created the radical idea that masters or those with the power in government uh, weren't masters, but rather they were ministers, very biblical language, that they might serve the people. And all of this leads to our day today. It leads to a world with much more freedom and tolerance and diversity and love. And I tell you all this and give you this this story because it's almost we need that story every single week to remind us that the tensions around the topics we're going to be talking about over the next couple of months actually arise even unknowingly from the same foundations. We just never think about it. That our presuppositions we bring to all these issues have been invisibly born out of Christian teaching. Historian Tom Holland, who's who's not a Christian, uh, and let me recommend his book, Dominion, to you if you want to read more about this. He, He reflects on the American Declaration of Independence, and he says this, that all men had been created equal and endowed with an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were not remotely self evident truths. That most Americans believed they were owed less to philosophy 
than to the Bible. And we can see this today if we, if we look around our world and compare. It's worth saying that we can be thankful that the discussion about religious freedom in our day is usually around social media posts and around who can have certain jobs or, or tests for certain jobs and activities, this, this clash that we have of conscience and conformity and compassion. We can be thankful that, that, that those, are the, those are where it's played out. Because in many countries today, that is not at all where the religious freedom battle is played out because there is no religious freedom. We know of the Uyghur Muslims in, in China who are now in, in re-education camps in China, places like Afghanistan and North Korea and other Muslim-majority countries where you are not free at all to be a Christian. Uh, a friend, a fellow minister uh, here, here in Melbourne who became a Christian, uh, travelling from Pakistan, became a Christian in Melbourne 10 years ago, he cannot go back because his family has disowned him. There is no freedom of religion there. But where the Christian message, where the values of Jesus have taken root in a society, over centuries, countries are more free. And so I share all this to show that hopefully the tree of Christianity, based on texts like this one in Mark 12, bear the fruit of a world that is more free, more pluralistic, more tolerant. It started with the words of Jesus, and now 2,000 years later, in a democratic society like ours, I think the best approach to building society is one that maintains this healthy separation between the sacred and the secular, so that faith might not arise through coercion, but through conversation. And at the same time, that that faith might be freely expressed rather than being coerced by the state. When religion and political power get mixed, it goes bad for everyone. And when political power enforces a religion or religious values, it goes bad for everyone. And that's why our own country and much of the Western world has it baked in to the system. We have it baked into our constitution in Australia. Section 116 says, The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. And that separation is important. Because when we're talking about freedom of religion, we're not just talking about freedom for what we're doing right now, to, to gather as people, to worship together. No, freedom of religion is an umbrella term that includes with it a whole lot of other freedoms that we want to hold on to and hold dearly onto. Hillary Clinton said in, in 2012, religious freedom is not just about religion. It's not just about the right of Roman Catholics to organize a mass or Muslims to hold a religious funeral or Baha'is to meet in each other's homes for prayer or Jews to celebrate high holy days together. As important as those rituals are, religious freedom is also about the right of people to think what they want, say what they think, and come together in fellowship without the state looking over their shoulder. It's the story of religious freedom. You still with me? Let's move on to the state of religious freedom today and focus in on where we are right now. So much of our world has been incredibly influenced by Jesus and Christianity, and it doesn't know it. And because of that, what we see play out in our own day, in our part of the world, especially when it comes to religious freedom, is really this clash of priorities, both of which have been born out of a Christian foundation. Now, more recently, our world has seemingly adopted something called expressive individualism. 
where we see that our authentic selves are our psychological selves, or our, what's going on inside of us. And we, we, we need the freedom to express that. And then flowing from the sexual revolution of the 1960s, didn't it become a, a, a value that, that your sexual self, your orientation, your identity, that is fundamental to who you are. And so you put those two together. It's your sexual self, especially if you're a sexual minority. It needs to be expressed. You need the freedom to express yourself. And so the most compassionate thing we can offer a person is for them to be able to express themselves sexually. The worst thing is for someone to have to repress who they believe they are, to feel shame about it. This is one of the most fundamental losses of freedom of all. And so today, you perhaps have noticed, because of all the issues that, that become public, today we have attention between the perceived freedom of sexual minorities, especially the the LGBTI community, to be themselves, and the perceived freedom of those with religious convictions that conflict against those values, whether Christian or Muslim or, or Jews or something else, them also being free to express themselves. And so when it comes to religious freedom, legally, we have it. It's there. It's baked in. It's in the the Constitution. It's in international charters and law. But there are gaps that are being exposed every so often by a different circumstance, a different uh, expectation coming to the fore, uh, embraced by either side of the debate with our different moral visions. Now, I'm not proposing to solve those tensions today. But let me say that I think we see from the Bible and throughout history, that we need to be wary of progressive authoritarianism on one hand, as if we can force conversions of people to embrace and celebrate progressive values, and what can sound on the other hand like a a civil religiosity that wants religious values enshrined and enforced upon all. And So we're going to have to ask our societies in the midst of these conversations and these moments and these tensions, what is going to be the moral authority to land on the values that we as a society want to be shaped by as we move into the future. One approach is perhaps the more more recent approach of intersectionality. The idea being that if someone is standing at an intersection, they can see where we should, they see clearly more about where we should go or where we have come from. And so our society can prioritize those who have found themselves at the intersection of, of multiple minority experiences. For example, if you are a woman and a woman who is same-sex attracted and a woman who is same-sex attracted and also a person of color. And in many ways, it makes perfect sense that we as a society would want to listen more to people who have been marginalized after many of them have felt silenced or bullied or uh, shamed in our culture for a very long time. It feels the compassionate thing to do, especially as Christians. We want to be people of tolerance, people of love and compassion. And there should be tolerance and and safety for all people made in God's image, loved by their creator. And so simply, it's just good self-awareness to listen to people who have been through things and experienced things firsthand. But the problem with with finding moral authority upon which to build uh, a society or, or find values to build a society is that this can create a world where everybody is trying to prove their marginalization. Everybody is trying to trying to get the moral high ground of their victim status. And if we're going to play that game, the intersectional game, then we'd have to say that Jesus of Nazareth 
A homeless Middle Eastern man raised under a repressive Roman regime, nailed to a cross by the, the powers of the day, God himself humbled to be a servant, would have to give him the most authority to speak and share his values into the world today. And yet when we do that, and when we listen to Jesus, we find that it's not that he leans on his experiences or his marginalization as the source of his authority. He leans on his word. In Matthew 24, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That his word is what he grounds his authority on, and he says and expects, hey, this is going to transcend our day today. This is going to transcend. This is going to be valuable going into the future, authoritative. And so we need to find our value somewhere. Or perhaps we need to find them from someone who speaks and who has lived with authority worth multiplying, with values worth multiplying, with values worth building a society upon. And we have 2,000 years of data that suggests that the values that arise in a culture when we listen to Jesus make for tolerance, make for civility, make for love. And so what are we going to do in the midst of this tension currently in our society? How should we as Christians particularly respond to what's going on in our wider world. For the short time we have left, let me make a start uh, at, at giving some recommendations for applying this and what I've been saying here about religious freedom. Uh, the first is an encouragement to us to love your neighbor by freeing your neighbor. Love your neighbor by freeing your neighbor. We all know we are called to love our neighbor. And it's very interesting that when Jesus is asked by, by the lawyer uh, in the story, you know, who is my neighbor? Help me, help, me, help me work it out. Who is it that I should actually love? Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He takes, takes a Samaritan as, as exemplary in this to illustrate our, our love for neighbor being not as just the neighbors that are like us, but rather a Samaritan is someone who doesn't share the same racial identity, someone who doesn't share the same social class, someone who, who doesn't share the same theology or, or convictions, certainly someone who we wouldn't say, hey, that person's on my team, that person's in my tribe. And so you and I are called to, to love our neighbours, but not just our similar neighbours, not just the neighbours we get along with, not just our likeable neighbours, we're called to love all of our neighbours. And I hope it's been clear that freedom of religion is a common good that creates a, a healthier society where people of all faiths and none have the freedom to think what they want and say what they think. And so we love our neighbours well, all of them, by advocating for all of them that they would be free to think what they want and say what they think by advocating for a society that upholds religious freedom. And so that means we need to be discerning as Christians about how we might be tempted to undermine that. In one direction, we need to be discerning about progressive authoritarianism, the overreach of, of governments or, or movements who, who have or are detaching themselves from the ecosystem of values that arise out of a Christian worldview. Because it's human nature. We see it in the world today. We've seen it throughout history. It is human nature to revert back to the idea that Jesus challenged in this text that true freedom can only be found through more control. And so we should advocate for secularization, where everybody is free, instead of secularism, where religion is as limited as possible. 
We should be confident as Christians that the gospel is good news. In a pluralistic society, the gospel will get a hearing because we're free to say it, free to speak it, free to share it. And yet, because we want the gospel to be shared, we also have to, at the very same time, be, be discerning for the ways that our faith can be weaponized by political movements to encourage us toward a, a civil religion. Because we know, at the same time, we, we can't legislate true gospel faith. Our primary judgments as Christians are, are, are not to the world, but to those in the church, in the faith. And so while we love our neighbours, we know our neighbours need to be just as free to reject the Christian message as much as we would want them to embrace the Christian message. That's number one. So that means primarily we should seek to, number two, persuade from one kingdom to another. Persuade from one kingdom to another. I mentioned last week, we've got that tension in our world today where we have Jesus saying, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. And he encourages us at the same time to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the question is, well, how do we, how do we go about that? How do we go about that influence that the world might come to know and join in the kingdom of God? Well, in Luke 9, there's, there's another story involving Samaritans. And it's where the disciples walked through Samaria, but they weren't welcomed by the Samaritans. And so James and John are triggered by that. And so they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And history highlights that there is always this this overwhelming temptation for us to want to use worldly means to achieve our goals. And this story highlights that that some of us might be like James and John, that our natural gut reaction might be be to, to bring the power, bring the heat, just, just shut them up. It's easy to take, take our, our theology of Christ's supremacy, his victory, his authority, and try to push it into the, world of the, the kingdom of this world by force. But in the Scriptures, we also see a better way. We see how the, the early churches, particularly around the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, In the book of Acts, we read about them spreading the gospel out there. And in Acts chapter 17, we read about them coming to Thessalonica. And Paul and Silas are there, and we're told the strategy. It says in in verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Later on, we're told by those who weren't persuaded, they started telling everybody, hey, these guys have turned the world upside down. You know, the way to turn the world upside down is through persuasion, through the message, through opening up the Bible and explaining, hey, Jesus is the Christ. Our faith And our power is built on good news. The good news that that Jesus came to to, to save us from the sin and the rejection of God that that we ourselves are responsible for and and, and committed. The good news that because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, all of us who have fallen and have failed can be found, forgiven, and freed by coming to our Heavenly Father, by faith in him. 
over the last couple of years, I was actually uh, invited by the, the federal member for Higgins to be a part of like a, a religious leaders discussion group about the religious discrimination bill. And I remember uh, a, a couple of times, one was on Zoom, one was in person, had the, the chance to, to sit around the table with, with Muslim leaders, Jewish leaders, and the whole kind of spectrum of different Christian leaders. And we're kind of went around the room to kind of state our position and where we were. And I confess, at that time, I was very nervous and I felt very out of my depth. And ironically, I was most nervous because of the other Christians, uh, the way they were looking at me, uh, who's this kind of young upstart here representing us. Uh, But it was a great encouragement to step into that nervousness and the anxiety I had in that moment and and have the opportunity to speak, to, to try to persuade and what's difficult for most of us is, is most of us won't be invited to a forum. Most of us won't be invited to a round table to, to, to tell us, please tell us what you think about religious freedom. Most of us are going to be forced into the conversation by being thrown a rugby jumper and being told you need to wear it. Or most of us are going to be forced into the conversation by being given the, the colourful company lanyard and, and, and you've got to put this on. Moments, tensions, where you're going to have to step back and think, hang on, what am I actually being asked to communicate here? What am I actually being asked to celebrate here? Well, in those moments, let me encourage you, it's not actually about the rugby jumper. It's not about the lanyard. It's about what you do with that, what you say next, about how you speak, how you share, how you might be able to take this opportunity to to persuade, to give a, a defense without defensiveness for the faith that you believe in. And so we need courage in those moments to not just take a stand and then retreat, but rather to lovingly seek to persuade by stating our reasoning, our heart, our compassion, our conviction. Finally, that leads to number three. Number three, build credibility through growing in humility. Michael Bird, in his great book, The Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, uh, which I plagiarized much of this morning, uh, he says this, Religious freedom is the most credible when religion is regarded as credible. Now, through the Scriptures, we see the, the tone and the tenor that we are called to have as believers. We don't just see the what, and I, I say this on repeat, we don't just see the what, we see the how we should engage as believers, toward opponents, toward the world, that we should do so with gentleness, with respect, with humility. Paul says in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You know, there's something that tastes like the kingdom of heaven to those in the kingdom of earth about a humility and a graciousness that seeks the common good and advocates for freedom that seeks to persuade, not by might, but by message. And as we've seen, it's it's the life of Jesus. This mind that Jesus had of of humility, of of sacrifice, of gentleness, that has made this remarkable impact upon the world. Now, Jesus would make a remarkable impact on the world. He is Jesus. But we are called to imitate Him, to follow Him to spread light and love into the world through humility, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And so in Jesus, we can have this this gospel confidence 
which is distinct and yet attractive, that, that champions the freedom of others. And in Jesus, we can have a gospel endurance, come what may, through suffering or persecution. In Jesus, we can find courage and humility to lovingly persuade others. And so ultimately, it all comes back to Jesus. This is, this is a Christian sermon after all. This, we are here to celebrate and worship Jesus. We need Jesus. Our world needs Jesus. And so we should be a people who live our lives, who, who tell stories, who speak good news that points people to follow Jesus. Number one, love your neighbor by freeing your neighbor. Number two, persuade from one kingdom to another. Number three, build credibility through growing in humility. Let's go to Jesus right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for his life, perfect. For his death, substitute. And for his resurrection, victorious. Lord, we thank you that you have stood in our place condemned and that we are fallen, that we have failed, that we have run from you. And yet you have run after us in love. You have run after us in service and in sacrifice. And so, Lord, help us have this mind among ourselves, that we might be people who, who follow you in humility, that we might be people who, who, in humility and in the courage that it will take, advocate for the common good for all, advocate for, for freedom for all, that we might be able to compel, invite, have conversations about the good news of Jesus and so that people would see it spoken and lived out in our lives. And so help us navigate this, this strange world that we live in now, in many ways influenced by the values of Jesus, but in many ways ignoring him, turning from him, Lord, we pray that we might be a distinct people, that we might be a people who continue to, to point us back to his life lived, to his death died, and to his resurrection, that we might be a people who invite people to, to change their minds and to trust and follow this Jesus. And so help us have the humility and help us have the courage that we need to navigate our days like this, to navigate our workplaces, to navigate our moments like this that we might do so with humility and with courage. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.